All right, this week uh, we had Ash Wednesday to begin uh, a time in the calendar referred to as Lent. And uh, Lent is really uh, looking at the last week of Jesus' life. And a lot happened in the last week of Jesus' life. On the uh, first day of that week, he, uh, trium- he, he has a triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he was riding on a colt. And that's the scene we're going to look at today. But as you look at what happens in the next seven days, a lot does. They go, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and prays with his disciples. Then he's arrested. Then he's betrayed by Judas. He's betrayed by Peter. He has the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room. Then you have his trial, you have his death, you have his burial, and you have his resurrection. All that happened in a week. So sometimes in churches, uh, they look at that uh, not just on the Sundays, but they look at that in in the literal week before Easter each year. So really there's a service every day for a week looking at a different scene like this. Well, uh, we're going to do it just on Sundays. Uh, And we're going to do it from the book of Luke. You guys know we've been in Luke all year. We looked at uh, the birth narrative in the last several weeks. We've looked at encounters that Jesus had with different individuals in the gospel. We're going to look at at this last week of Jesus' life from the book of Luke. And then uh, once we're done with Lent, uh, we're going to finish out the spring by looking at parables from Luke. So, uh, today, uh, let's look at this triumphal entry, uh, looking in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, and we will read through verse 41. And when he had said these things, he, Jesus, went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt. Tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, we need your help. Uh, Lord, would you uh, combine your spirit with this word and cause change to happen within us. Lord, we want to look more like you. That's the whole point of our lives, and that's why we're here today. And so, Lord, would you use uh, this sermon to that end? In Christ's name, amen. Here you have Jesus. He's approaching the very end of his earthly life. And Luke has been giving us hints all along in his gospel that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem You see it in verse 28. It says, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. You can see he's steadfast. He's resolutely postured to fulfill his mission. But there's a huge problem. 
What Jesus has in mind as his mission is very different from what his disciples have in mind as his mission. Jesus' mission is to be the Messiah who dies. His disciples think that he's going to be the Messiah who comes and overthrows the Roman government. But there's one thing that Jesus and the disciples are on the same page about. That something significant is about ready to happen. That this whole trek to Jerusalem is going to be a big deal. And Jesus gives a clue to the nature of what his time in Jerusalem is going to be about when he tells his disciples to go into the village and to take a colt and bring it back to him so that he can ride it into Jerusalem. Now think about how Jesus could have gone into Jerusalem. He could have walked. That's what normal people would have done. They would just have walked into the city. But that's not how a king arrives. A king would be riding on a fancy horse. But horses were a rare commodity. They were very expensive. And Jesus wanted to signal that he wasn't a normal king who rode into town on horses. Rather, he was a humble king. He was so humble that he ended up dying for his people. And that's why he rode in on a donkey. The passage that Remy read earlier from Zechariah 9. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, which is found in the Old Testament, it's written about 500 years before Jesus. Here's what it says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you put yourself in Zechariah's audience's shoes, when Zechariah's audience hears this, they're throwing their fists in the air. They are so excited that salvation is going to come to them, a suffering people. They know they need a conquering warrior. But when Zechariah continues to explain in verse 9 the nature of what this warrior is going to be like, they went from throwing their fists in the air to scratching their heads. They see that he's going to be a humble king, that he's going to be mounted on a donkey. And it sounds like the kind of king who's going to lose. It just doesn't make sense. It's hard to swallow that Jesus at one and the same time can be triumphant and humble. So when Jesus rides into town on a donkey, it would be like him riding into town on a huffy. It would be like him riding into town on a tricycle. And kings don't ride into towns on huffies and tricycles. Well, look how the people react to this king on a donkey. We see two groups, really. We see his disciples starting in verse 35, and then we see the Pharisees in verse 39. Let's look at the disciples in verse 35, how they react to this king riding on a donkey. We see that they give him a very warm reception, don't they? I mean, they're thoroughly impressed by Jesus. And when it says disciples, it doesn't necessarily mean just the 12. So these people who are impressed by Jesus, they throw cloaks on the donkey. Because any, normal, any person with any kind of reputation, they can't be riding this donkey bareback. There's no honor to that. And then they throw cloaks on the ground for the donkey to walk on top of. You see, this is red carpet treatment Jesus is getting. 
They're trying to signify that he is indeed a dignified person. So yes, their actions back up what they think about Jesus, but so do their words. Look at verse 37. It says, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, if we were to retranslate this, we could say, Strike up the band. Bring out the finest champagne. It's time to celebrate. Their excitement has hit fever pitch. Why? Because everything that they'd seen in Jesus' ministry. I mean, these people were his disciples. They had seen lepers cleanse. They had seen the lame walk. They had seen the blind see, the deaf speak, and the gospel preached. They've experienced all of this wonderful things. They've seen all these wonderful deeds that Jesus has done. But their understanding of Jesus is very shallow. See, Luke says they praise him. You see it there? Luke says they praise him because of the mighty works they have seen. So they're not praising him for his person. Jesus has their attention, but he does not have their allegiance. For all the exciting things the disciples have seen, they're anticipating the most exciting thing is still yet to come. They are expecting Jesus to ride in Jerusalem and kick some Roman tail. They're very aware that they need a savior. They know that they don't have what it takes to conquer the Romans. But based on what they've seen from Jesus, they think Jesus is a pretty good candidate for them to place all their chips in his basket. But we know Jesus isn't going to kick the Roman's tail. And that's when the shallowness of his disciples' faith is exposed. They cry, blessed is the king in verse 38. And it just takes a few more days for them to cry out, crucify him. So when Jesus is doing what we want him to do, we cry, blessed is Jesus. But when we start to suffer, and when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations... We bail on him, just like the disciples in Luke 19. Brother and sister, is this you this morning? Have you been really impressed by Jesus and what he might do in your life? Has he had your attention and not your allegiance? Well, maybe he's calling you to leave your shallow, fickle, superficial faith for something of substance. Something that's going to require your whole life. And I hope you look to Jesus and not the church big C or our church little C. Because we will do nothing but disappoint you. And Jesus is wanting you to get in touch with weighty issues like what it means to be human. He's wanting you to get in touch with the holiness of God. He's wanting you to get in touch with suffering and eternity You just can't grow in spiritual depth without taking these kinds of things seriously. This is one kind of group. This is one group. This shallow, fickle group. These disciples who cry, blessed is Jesus, to crucify him just days later. But there's a second group. I mentioned them already. It's in verse 39. They reject Jesus too, but in a different way. 
You see at verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So here's what you see in the Pharisees. They're very comfortable with having Jesus as a teacher. That's why they address him as such in verse 39. They've learned to give respect to respectable people. They've learned social graces. They're even willing for Jesus to speak into their lives in a place or two. The problem is they don't have any room for Jesus to rescue them. I mean, basically, they think they're in good shape. They might have some minor tweaks they need to make. Some small improvements could be made in their lives. Jesus could make them better versions of themselves. But on the whole, the Pharisees are very confident in who they are. They're also very secure in their social status. Because they've got the respect from Jews. They've got the blessing of the Roman magistrates. See, here's what's important to understand about their relationship with Rome. They're ruling over the Jews, but they don't necessarily do so in a way that makes the Jews slaves. Now, they they do want to keep Jewish descent down. They do want to collect their tax money, but they want to keep things fairly peaceable. So they allow the Jews to maintain their culture on the whole. But when Jesus rides into town, the Jewish populace, as we see here, goes berserk. So that poses a real threat. Jesus could upset the apple cart if the Jews decide to crown him as their revolutionary leader so that he could lead a coup against the Romans. And since the Pharisees enjoy this snug relationship with the Romans, they want to squash their enthusiasm before it gets out of hand. And that's why they tell Jesus to tell his disciples to simmer it down. The Pharisees fear being displaced from their cozy position of power and respect. And they just have no reason to get excited about Jesus because they don't need Jesus to save them. And in verse 40, we see that Jesus disagrees with them. (laughs) He thinks there's plenty of reason to get excited. That's why he says, I tell you, if these, the disciples, were silent, the rocks would cry out. So here you have the humble king of Zechariah 9. He's finally come, and that's worth celebrating. The Pharisees know Zechariah 9, but they don't see Jesus because they are dead as a rock. That which is lifeless does not see life when it sees it. So apparently, the rocks have more life in them than the Pharisees. They've rejected Jesus, and now Jesus gives them this stinging indictment. See, Pharisees at their very core were legalistic. And many of us struggle with the same things that they do. We too are legalists. We've got a set of rules by which when we follow, we are in good shape, and when we break, we are in bad shape. Essentially, legalism is about effort. It's about willpower. So how do you know you have a strong, inner, legalistic heart posture? Let me give you two ways. Two ways that you might not say in verse 39, teacher, tell your disciples to simmer down. But you still identify this inner legalist. The first way you see it is in casting judgment on others. That's what the Pharisees do in our text. They call out Jesus' disciples. They see that they're shallow, simple, and ignorant. But there are people who are in desperation. 
And people who are in desperation, they don't have any room for being judgmental. They know they're a mess. That's why the only person who ever calls out the Pharisees in the Gospels is Jesus. It's going to take the hammer of the Son of God to make a dent in their thick skulls. And Jesus gets out his hammer right here, doesn't he? He gets out his hammer with that rocks comment. And maybe that's what Jesus is doing with you this morning. He's saying, while you're over there looking down on someone else for their lack of depth, for their erratic behavior, for their lack of commitment, I'm telling you that you're deader than a rock. The other way you'll see your inner Pharisee, your inner legalist, is if you defend yourself and make excuses. Adolf Eichmann, he was one of the main organizers for the Nazi party and the Holocaust of the Jews. He was tried for war crimes after the war was over. And when journalists who were let in on some of these investigations, when they were exposed to Mr. Eichmann, they expected to find a monster of a man. I mean, wouldn't you? But what the journalists found was a very normal, older German man. And they observed that the most troubling aspect of Eichmann was not any outward expression of hate towards the Jews. What was frightening about Mr. Eichmann was his capacity for defending himself and to excuse his behavior. This raises a tough question for me and you, doesn't it? If people can justify the most terrible crimes in history, how much more can we justify our behavior? I mean, we use excuses like, you misunderstood me. Or really saying, I'm not as bad as that. We say, that's just who I am. Meaning, I'm a sinner. You're just going to have to live with it. I was just being honest. Can't you handle the truth? I didn't mean to do it. Meaning, I didn't mean to get caught. I'm just saying what I feel. There's nothing wrong with my feelings. We have a communication problem. You're half the problem. See, if Luke would have continued the conversation with Jesus and the Pharisees, I can guarantee you that you would have heard excuses on their lips. But ultimately, just like the disciples in verses 35 to 39, who put cloaks on the donkey and put cloaks on the ground for the donkey, who say, blessed is Jesus, and seven days later they say, crucify him. Just like they reject Jesus, so do the Pharisees. So what does Jesus do? Where do we see Jesus go from here? Now that he's got these two different kinds of people who reject him in different ways. Look at verse 41. You see him ride into the city. He receives the praise. He gets the cloaks on the ground, the cloaks on the donkeys. He has this exchange with the Pharisees. And then it looks like he finds a moment of privacy, doesn't it? He finds a moment of privacy where he is now in Jerusalem and he now 
gets at the high point of the city and he overlooks the city. And when he looks at the city, it represents both kinds of people, doesn't it? He's got people in the city who have seen his miracles and heard his message. He knows they're impressed with him, but they're shallow, just like the people who threw their cloaks on the ground and sang him a song. When he looks at the city, he sees that there are Pharisees and people like the Pharisees who are very skeptical of him. And what does he do for both kinds of people? He weeps. See, I, I think if you had Jesus and you had him, gave him access to go to the big blue building downtown and he went to the 30th floor and he looked out onto the city. Or if Jesus came and he stood on this stage and looked at us, I think he would weep. When he would look at the city or when he would look at our church, he would see people whose faith is shallow. He would see people who would abandon him if times got tough. He would see people who trust in their own righteousness instead of his for their salvation, just like the Pharisees. And if I were Jesus, I would have said, when you quit being shallow, when you quit being self-righteous, then I'll die for you. Yet that's not what he did. And while they in Luke 19 and we in 2022 were still shallow, when we were self-righteous, when we had not changed at all, when we were just as lifeless as rocks, and when we were still sinners, Jesus wept for us because he loved us. See, ultimately, Jesus rode into the city on a donkey and he died for shallow, shallow and self-righteous people who rejected him. So friends, this Easter, can we get beyond the lilies and the chocolate bunnies and the family hoopla and a big meal and see the beauty of the gospel? To see that our sin is great, either it's flaky faith or it's performance-oriented religion. But they both reject Jesus, yet Jesus still weeps over you because he loves you. And because he doesn't want you to experience judgment that awaits all those who reject him. So do you see the weeping Jesus today? Let's pray. Our Father, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, we're amazed that you would weep for us. That you didn't wait for us to leave our shallow ways. You didn't wait for us to leave our legalistic ways before you showed your love for us. Oh, Lord, we marvel in that love this morning. Christ's name, amen.